Russian troops building up on the Ukrainian border, new U.S. sanctions announced on Russian officials, reciprocal expulsion of U.S. and Russian diplomats. These are just some of the newest updates to the relationship between Russia and the United States. It comes as no surprise that during the 2021 annual threat assessment presented by the American intelligence community to Congress last week, Russia was listed as one of the two major concerns to the national security of the US. Our relationship with Russia has always been tenuous, but these are just, but, but are these latest actions simply status quo or are they an escalation? Good evening and welcome to our program. Thanks for joining us. We are in for a special treat this evening. I am David Jacobs, one of the vice chairs of the council's board of directors, and my wife and I have been huge fans of tonight's speaker, Dr. Fiona Hills, since she spoke to our council back in 2015, and I am so honored to introduce her tonight. Moderating our event is council's president and CEO, Liz Brailsford. They will be discussing the timely topic of the domestic and foreign policy challenges of dealing with Russia. While tonight's program is not centered on a recent book, I do want to mention that Dr. Hill's new book, There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century, is going to be published this October. I highly recommend reading it once it is out. We have a full schedule of virtual programs, so remember to check our website at dfwworld.org for newly scheduled events. I would like to thank our media sponsor, the Dallas Morning News, for their support of this program. Additionally, I want to recognize the World Affairs Council of Jacksonville, the World Affairs Council of Tacoma, and World Oregon for their promotional partnership. Thanks to each of you for your participation. And now I bring to you Dr. Fiona Hill, Dr. Hill is the Robert Bosch Senior Fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings. From 2017 to 2019, she served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs on the National Security Council. From 2006 to 2009, she served as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. Prior to joining Brookings, she was Director of Strategic Planning at the Eurasia Foundation in Washington, DC, and she is a co-author of multiple wonderful books. Liz Brailsford has been President and CEO of our Council for two months now. Liz is settling in in Dallas after leaving Washington, DC, where she served as the COO at the World Affairs Councils of America. Her career has crossed all sectors, nonprofit, private, and public. We look forward to what our council will continue to accomplish with Liz at the helm. And now Liz, I turn the program over to you. Dave, thank you so much. And I am incredibly excited to work with you going forward. Uh, and I really appreciate that intro, Fiona. I am so excited about this. Russia has persisted in our news and brain spaces for many years, and uh, it perpetuates even today. 
uh, and it may perpetuate for many years to come as Putin signed legislation, legislation or recently uh, that he could stay in power until 2036. So uh, that kicks us off and uh, let's start a little bit wider with some uh, background and context. Tell us a really brief overview of our relationship with Russia and at what level is our relationship currently through the lens of the decades of our association. And I do see you are on mute, so I will ask you to unmute and uh, welcome you to the program. Thank you so much, Lois, and also to David as well. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here. I'm just very sad I can't be there in person um, as I was in 2015. It would be very nice to be able to come back again. And you know, I uh, remember very fondly the very warm reception that I got when I did come, and I'm very grateful to you for having me again. Uh, and you know, back in 2015 when I uh, spoke in front of the council. Our relationship with Russia wasn't great either, unfortunately. So, you know, I think that, you know, your reference at the beginning here is very apt. We've certainly had a lot of ups and downs and more downs than ups um, of late. Um, my uh, time in working with the government goes back to uh, uh, George uh, W. Bush and um, period um, in his second uh, term when I was the National Intelligence Officer, as David uh, suggests. And you, you may recall, of course, that um, uh, President Bush himself um, was somewhat embarrassed, you know, after the fact that, you know, his first meeting uh, with Putin in Slovenia, he talked about looking into Putin's eyes and uh, seeing his soul and, of course, got ribbed about that for a long time afterwards, as he himself would relate, including to me when I was um, doing briefings with him, you know, by people like Dick Cheney and uh, Colin Powell, who said, yeah, we looked into his eyes and we saw KGB, KGB, KGB. You know, we didn't necessarily see a man that we could work with because, of course, that reference about you know taking the measure of Putin went back to you know the period during the Cold War uh, when George W. Bush's father, um, George H. W. Bush, Herbert Walker Bush, and also you know, his predecessor, of course, Ronald Reagan, had looked at Gorbachev and seen somebody that they could work with in terms of bringing the Cold War to an end and trying to forge a, a new relationship. And you know, way back when, when President Putin was first starting out, and as you've mentioned, he's been there for you know, what's going to be 21 years now, since 2000, and may in fact uh, be in the presidency in uh, uh, 2036, for a full 36 years, longer than any other previous Soviet leader or certainly anybody in the modern era. You know, we wondered, could we work with this guy? You know, could we forge some kind of, if not strategic partnership with Russia, but something that was more stable, something more predictable? And unfortunately, as time has evolved, we've not been able to do that. Now, of course, why is that the case? Well, part of that is really the kind of the framing of this relationship, because we were the former Soviet uh, era superpower rivals, the United States and the Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union collapsed at the end of 1991, you know, basically what will be, um, you know, 30 odd years uh, ago, coming up uh, this December, Russia lost something. It, you know, kind of, in fact, in the course of the 20th century, lost the state of Russia twice. And Vladimir Putin's always talking about that. The Russian Empire was lost after the Russian Revolution, and then the Soviet Union was lost um, at the collapse of uh, the USSR. And that sense of loss has been something of a, a hangover in all of that period. We, the United States, actually gained something. We gained the end of the Cold War, and Ukraine and you know all the other countries that were formerly part of the uh, Soviet Union gained their sovereignty, gained their independence, they became new countries. And in a way, Putin, 
and the people around him have been trying to overcome that loss ever since and prove themselves uh, because Putin himself was a product of the Soviet era as a KGB officer who was, you know, hoping to rise up the ranks. In fact, he'd risen much further than he could possibly anticipate by becoming the new Russian uh, president in uh, a post-Soviet era, but he couldn't have anticipated that back in the 1980s when he was uh, a KGB officer. He's always been trying to come to terms with that and to prove that Russia is still a major player on the world stage. And that's part of the problem that we're contending with. Over that full sweep of time, uh, going back to 2000 when he came in power, his whole goal has been to put back Russia back again, in uh, the uh, not just in the headlines, but back as a great power, put it back together again domestically, because Russia, when he inherited it in 2000, was insolvent. The, the whole 1990s had been a period not just of loss of empire, but a period of economic collapse. People had lost their livelihoods, lost their jobs. Putin said he was going to fix this, going to put it back again. In a way, he's the first populist president. And he's the first person who says he's going to make his country great again. He was basically uh, wanting to put Russia back into business at home and back into business abroad. And that's often meant clashing with us and trying to confront the United States to show that Russia is back in action. And that's really kind of what we've been contended with in all this time frame. Well, I think it's uh, obviously more than us uh, that he's contending with. There's been a lot of geopolitical moves that has been happening in recent years, not to say in the very least Ukraine, which uh, is all over the news these past days with what looked like uh, a couple dozens of thousand, uh, thousands of troops that were on the eastern border and, and uh, in Crimea, and now they're saying it could be up to 100,000. So, uh, you know, since that evasion into Crimea, NATO has bulked up uh, in 2014. I mean, NATO has bulked up their prep. Uh, a lot of NATO countries are still not spending 2% on their GDP on defense. 2% uh, of their GDP on defense, which was a hot button issue for President Trump. Uh, but what is NATO doing to prepare for potential action in what could be uh, on the eastern border and in Crimea? And, and uh, are they doing enough? I mean, Russia has really built up their capabilities since this 2014 invasion. Well, first of all, is Ukraine, of course, isn't a member of NATO, but, you know, Ukraine uh, at the various points had certainly wanted to be. And NATO itself is very much a flashpoint for Putin. It's part of that whole attempt to kind of revise what happened at the end of the Cold War. Because of course the Warsaw Treaty Organization, which was the equivalent of NATO for the Soviet Union, the Eastern Bloc military alliance fell apart with the Soviet Union and NATO was left standing. And at different points, we kind of thought, well, you know, okay, maybe Russia could potentially join NATO. And we set up a NATO-Russia council but of course, you know, that didn't happen. And it was probably pretty far fetched to think that was going to be the case, because really, as far as Russia was concerned, NATO was part of the reason that, the, that Russia, the Soviet Union fell apart. It was that pressure from NATO during the Cold War, the conventional arms buildup, and ultimately also, of course, the nuclear standoff uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union in the Reagan era that put a lot of uh, stress on the Russian and Soviet system. There was socioeconomic problems, of, of course, as well, but all of that accumulated stress brought the Soviet Union down. So the idea that they were going to join NATO, seemingly the Victor uh, organization, uh, was, was probably a stretch, as I said. Now, other countries in the former Soviet bloc, um, in the Eastern bloc, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, 
have all joined uh, NATO, which was a bit of a shock uh, to the Russian uh, system, but also so have some of the former republics of the Soviet Union, uh, the Baltic states. Now those were um, forced back into uh, Russia uh, during World War II, having become independent at the collapse of uh, the Russian empire. But the idea that other um, places like Ukraine or Georgia um, might become members of NATO has really uh, been uh, almost a causeless ballet, uh, uh, basically a impetus towards war for Russia. And we saw in 2008 when Georgia wanted to join NATO and wanted to get a membership action plan for NATO along with Ukraine that Russia invaded. Uh, and it, they did that to teach them a lesson. We've seen the same pattern emerging now in Ukraine since this past summer. Ukraine backed off trying to um, seek entry to NATO back in 2008 uh, because they saw the writing on the wall. And what precipitated the annexation of Crimea in 2014 was Ukraine thinking, okay, we can't do NATO because the Russians might invade like they did with Georgia, but we could join the European Union. And there was a great deal of interest in having an association agreement with Europe, but Russia saw that as a backdoor to NATO. And that's when they moved in after protests uh, about uh, joining uh, the EU caused and precipitated the collapse of the Ukrainian government under uh, Yanukovych. That's when Russia moved in to seize Crimea, again, sending a message, no way are you going to move towards NATO. And as you said, since then, Russia's paranoia has increased because NATO has been building up um, its, uh, um, not necessarily just its troop deployments, but its naval uh, capacity in the Baltic states, you know, kind of moving troops uh, on rotational uh, terms, you know, closer out to uh, the um, uh, the Russian border. And we have to remember that during the Cold War, that border in the Soviet bloc was right down the middle of Germany between East and West Germany. And, you know, Russia has always wanted to have, the Soviet Union has always wanted to have a big buffer between it and NATO. And now, of course, it's encroaching closer with Poland and Hungary and the Czech and Slovak republics and the Baltic states. And Russia has become increasingly paranoid. And there's one little, you had the map up earlier, there's one little exclave of uh, Russia, Kaliningrad, that's sandwiched in between the Baltic states and um, Poland. It was a, formerly actually a, a principality of Germany. You can um, sort of see it as a little kind of, there you are, there's a little kind of little white patch between Poland and the kind of red of um, one of the Baltic states, Kaliningrad. And uh, Putin and Russia, Moscow, the military, um, for them, that's a really important piece of real estate. And everything focuses on that. And they're very worried and paranoid that NATO would uh, impose blockades, you know, or they might bomb Kaliningrad or anything like uh, this, for example. So that becomes another flashpoint. And they're always focused on that and also Belarus. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. And we've seen that there have been a lot of protests in Belarus recently against the incumbent president there. Mr. Lukashenko, who's been in power even longer than Putin. He's been there since 1994 and intends to keep on staying indefinitely, it seems. And there's been a lot of protests in, in Belarus ongoing the whole time. 
which uh, have, have also rattled Putin. So all of this comes together. And the kind of idea that Ukraine might be flirting with NATO again, Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, talked about having NATO exercises potentially in the Black Sea with the Ukrainian um, uh, fleet because they lost a lot of their capacity after Russia seized Crimea, which is where the Ukrainian Black Sea fleet was, not just the traditional area of the Russian Black Sea fleet. And all of this becomes a major flashpoint. So NATO is actually in the business right now of conflict management. We don't want to end up in the kind of war that we avoided with Russia during the Cold War, because the Russians have also made it clear that they wouldn't you know, um, rule out using a tactical nuclear weapon if they found themselves in some kind of confrontation uh, with, uh, the, with NATO. And of course, they're most more likely to use it on Ukraine or in Ukraine than anywhere else. So we have a real dilemma here. We have to figure out how to deter Russia from taking action and how to defuse it. And as you're saying, they've been engaged in this big troop buildup. In fact, you know, kind of some of the figures are suggesting there might be 150,000, maybe even 180,000 troops now from Russia amassed on the borders uh, with um, Ukraine in two points, in Crimea, uh, down in the south, and also now on the um, eastern uh, flank, uh, where uh, the Ukrainian and Russian border is, there you see there with Luhansk and uh, Donetsk. And so we're in a really tense period. This seems a little bit like, in many respects, the kind of war scare that we've had you know, previously with the Soviet Union in the past. And certainly we did see, both in 2008 and again in 2014, that Russia will move in forces because they sent in uh, troops into Crimea. They managed to take it without a shot being fired, but that's not the case in Luhansk and uh, Donetsk, where they've certainly sent in proxy forces. They've sent in their own military forces, even though they've denied it. And uh, they you know, basically sparked off a war that um, is heating up there in that eastern part of Ukraine. So this is a very dangerous situation. And it really does raise a lot of the stakes for NATO, not just whether we can deter, but as you suggest, what do we do if Russia really sends in forces? Because Ukraine is not part of NATO. That's what Russia is banking on. And there are limits uh, to what we can do. So let me ask you. Uh... Ukraine joining NATO has been a long time coming. Uh, the relations really started around 1994. As you mentioned, in 2008, they started to put together their paperwork. Uh, so what is the likelihood in the future that they will join given this complication of Russia and with the Russia invasion? Could that happen in the future? Are we looking at uh, a, a positive step in that direction? And then also uh, speaking on this same topic, with all of the allies that the US has and with NATO, even though Ukraine is not officially part of NATO, why is Russia such a threat when there is also nuclear capabilities with all of these other countries? Why are they such a threat? And do we really believe that they would use nuclear capabilities? I think we actually have to believe that they would, because, you know, certainly tactical nuclear weapons. And we've had a number of our supreme allied commanders in Europe who are essentially the military heads uh, for NATO warn about this. And certainly in my own previous positions, we were concerned about that because what Putin wants to make clear to Ukraine and Georgia and all the other countries that um, he's put on notice is that if he threatens, he will deliver. And this is why it's in such a dangerous period right now, because that threat of military force Putin wants to make it clear that he is not a paper tiger, that this isn't just done for show, and that if necessary, as we saw in 2008, he will send in troops as he did in, uh, in Georgia, just to teach them a lesson. So that's part of the dilemma. And Putin also likes to think that if you have a capability, you should use it. 
I mean, we've seen him in cyber, um, you know, space, for example, with all these intrusions, the recent hacking of solar winds, there's all kinds of things that they can do. They've, you know, kind of used subversion, covert action, proxy forces, paramilitaries, you know, we can't really rule out anything. And, you know, they've, they've um, had launched massive cyber attacks against uh, Ukraine, one which, you know, reverberated all around the world through, you know, kind of contamination, essentially, and uh, caused billions of dollars of damage to all kinds of private companies in the United States, like FedEx and others. This is kind of so-called not Petya attack. So we've seen them do all kinds of things. And that's what makes Russia a threat. Because Putin sees the United States as a threat in terms of our capacity and capabilities, and he doesn't want to have Ukraine or Georgia or any of the other former Soviet republics. I mean, the Baltic states have already moved on, but he doesn't want to have any of them, again, joining NATO, joining the European Union, or even being a success. Because that becomes dangerous at home, because there are lots of people at home who want to see change. They don't necessarily want to see the end of the state. It's not like a Russian revolution or the end of the Soviet Union but they don't want to keep seeing Vladimir Putin and the people around him in power indefinitely out to 2036 or even beyond. There are other people, younger people in Russia who would like their chance uh, you know, to see the, the country change. Not necessarily wholesale reform, but this is why we have Alexei Navalny, who's also been in the headlines sitting in jail in a penal colony and why the Russians have tried to kill him because he's asking for change. Just like in Belarus, where we've seen major protests in Belarus wanting to see Lukashenko go, People are just basically saying, look, why should we have Vladimir Putin here forever? And so Putin's trying to prove himself right now. He's trying to prove that not only is he the boss at home, but he is a major player abroad and the people shouldn't mess about with him. And so this is part of our problem. Posturing against NATO, posturing against the United States is meant to show that Putin is a really strong man. He's a statesman. He can hold his own internationally and he can certainly clamp down at home if necessary. Well, you mentioned that uh, about younger people and, of, of course, Navalny, uh, and he just recently went to a, a prison uh, hospital uh, due to his poor condition. Uh, there was a question from our audience. You mentioned younger people want, wanting to uh, perhaps get into power themselves, but this audience member asked, do, uh, do the majority of the Russians approve of still of Putin? Uh, Putin's ratings have uh, really dropped lately. And you know, this is also, I think, part of the whole picture in which we're seeing. The same thing happened in, uh, uh, you know, kind of around the time of uh, the uh, annexation of Crimea. So Putin saw his ratings drop um, on other occasions, usually where there's been some sort of um, popular disagreement with one of his policies. There was a period really early in his, in his tenure where they shifted over um, pensions from um, basically a whole bunch of non-monetary benefits to a monetary benefit. And many Russian pensioners actually really enjoyed having the non-monetary benefits because there was lots of subsidies. And they suspected deeply that they were being shortchanged when these were all moved over into monetary benefits, which is probably true, to be honest, because there was a lot of pension arrears, people just weren't getting their pensions, and they were relying on a lot of the free bus passes and subsidized energy and heating and housing, etc. And when that happened, there was massive protests and um, the Russian government had to back down quite a bit and uh, Putin's ratings dropped. The next time his ratings dropped was when he was coming back into the presidency again, having stepped away for a period and having had Dmitry Medvedev act as president. He thought he was going to be you know, praised when he came back again, that people would be really pleased to see him. And actually, there weren't so much. You know, he'd already been president uh, for two terms. He'd 
still been prime minister. Now he was coming back again. This is 2007, 2012. There were mass protests. And he saw that his ratings were dropping. It was kind of like a branding exercise and his brand had got stale. And so what did he do? You know, there was lots of reasons why he did this, but he annexed Crimea and his rating shot through the roof. I mean, he was basically in the stratospheric levels of 80, almost 90% approval ratings. Why was Crimea so popular? Because in the popular imagination in Russia, Crimea is part of, you know, Russian heritage. It's, uh, you know, reputedly the place where Putin's namesake, uh, Prince Vladimir, Grand, Grand Prince Vladimir, took on Christianity. So it's got that, you know, religious aspect to it. It was the area that was um, annexed away from the Ottoman Empire by Catherine the Great. It's got all of this famous history. It was the birthplace of the Black Sea Fleet. So every imperial idea of Russia is tied up one way or another with Crimea. And Crimea had been transferred during the Soviet period to Ukraine by Nikita Khrushchev, who isn't always the most popular of Soviet leaders. There was a good reason for doing this, though. It wasn't just because um, Khrushchev wanted to reward Ukraine. It was this was the era of Russian-Soviet central planning, and it proved to be very difficult to basically integrate Crimea into Russia because all of the transportation, water, and all the infrastructure came from Ukraine. And um, the Soviet Union thought it was just much easier to transfer Crimea over to Ukraine. And you can see on your map there uh, that there's this new Crimean bridge um, over the Kerch Strait, uh, between the Kerch Strait, the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov. That bridge is really new. And it's one of Putin's closest friends uh, um, who has built this bridge at extraordinary cost. In the Soviet period, they couldn't afford to do that. They couldn't also figure out how to do it because it was a, a, a real feat of engineering. And everything had to come down this very narrow stretch of land at the northern part of Crimea from Ukraine. And so, you know, once Russia annexed Crimea, it was actually quite difficult to maintain. And so this has been, you know, very much here a bit of a problem. But when uh, Russia took Crimea back, at least, you know, kind of uh, symbolically, this was a great thing. A lot of the um, uh, holiday beaches um, are in Crimea. Uh, workers during the Soviet Union, they get sent on nice, you know, kind of seaside holidays to Crimea. It was one of the, you know, the Black Sea resorts. Like um, these are the places you see on the map um, over on the other side of the Black Sea, Krasnodar and Sochi. Krasnodar is where Putin's apparently built himself this mega palace that Alexei Navalny um, uh, revealed. And Sochi, of course, is the place where the Winter Olympics was, but it's also a summer vacation spot. So summer vacations on the Black Sea are a very important part of all of this as well. So it was super popular when Putin took over Crimea. And now there's a lot of people worried that, OK, Putin's popularity is flagging again. And so to kind of get himself you know, back in the mix, get himself back in the picture, doing something Ukraine might be popular, but I'm not so sure. You know, it's hard to keep on doing the same thing over and over and over again and get your popularity rating. So Putin's worried because like everybody else, he's dealing with COVID, the pandemic, an economic downturn, there's all kinds of problems and keeping your popularity high is difficult for any politician. And possibly having to do that until 2036 now. Yeah. What's he gonna uh, do every year? I mean, you can't yeah. keep on annexing something every single year, right? Yeah. Well, maybe. So Let's talk about uh, the China-Russia uh, relationship. This is a powerful duo. Uh, they both seem to be on the same page on uh, many issues, geopolitical invasions and spread, uh, vaccination diplomacy, severe and material cyber hacking. And this dovetail, dovetails with a good question from one of our interns, Margarita. And she asks, 
President Trump focused on repairing its relationship with Russia for the sake of countering China. How is the Biden administration likely to address Moscow and Beijing's growing strategic relationship? Well, that's a really great question from Margarita, and she's absolutely right. Um, President Trump did uh, want to improve the relationship with Russia um, as a counterweight to China. He also thought it might be a counterweight to Iran. And, um, you know, unfortunately, that didn't prove out to be the case because Russia has a very different perspective on both of those countries than we do. In the case of Iran, uh, Russia doesn't really see Iran as, you know, kind of a crazy theologically driven country and, of course, doesn't have the baggage that we have going back to 1979 and the um, uh, revolution um, and the seizure of the American embassy in Tehran. Russia's not had that kind of recent experience. Russia sees Iran uh, like the Persian Empire, another old imperial power in the neighbourhood like the Turks, the former Ottoman Empire, some other they've been dealing with for centuries, and they don't really see it as a lot different. And in fact, they sometimes see um, Iran as a useful counterweight to others, including the Saudis in the, in the Middle East. So the Russians weren't very interested in taking a, 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 an anti-Iranian position like we were as well. They tended to resist that, even though they also do see Iran as a bit of a problem in the region. And interestingly, Russia is very much um, in favor of boosting Israel's sovereignty and security in ways that it clearly wasn't during the Soviet period. I'm sure that many people who are members of the council here will find that really odd when they think back to the Soviet period where uh, Russia and Soviet Union took a very hard and harsh stance against Israel. They tried to curb Jewish emigration from um, uh, the Soviet Union into Israel, but now they actually see Israel as an asset and with all of the emigres from the Soviet Union to Israel, they actually take a point of pride in the fact that they have a large Russian speaking population in modern Israel, and they see that as kind of creating a kind of a greater affinity. And in that respect, they were quite interested in uh, working with the United States to head off the threat to Israel from Iran, but that's where it ended. China, it's a little similar and different, obviously. With China, you know, Russia sees a common cause in pushing back against US sanctions and a lot of the things the United States does internationally, uh, particularly from the vantage point of the United Nations. You often see China and Russia bandwagoning together. Russia doesn't like, uh, just like China, US sanctions, particularly the way that we use the dollar uh, as a, uh, not just a diplomatic tool, but as a punitive tool against uh, actions that countries take that we don't like. So the Chinese don't like our sanctions against them. The Russians don't like our, Chinese, our sanctions against them, but both of them have an incentive to try to push back against those. They also don't like, you know, the United States stance um, against their own actions in areas that they see as their strategic uh, regions of interest. I mean, obviously, we don't like one little bit what China's doing in the South and East China Seas, what they're doing against Taiwan, what the way that they kind of push against the Japanese and the Koreans. And you know, just the whole military rise of China has been very troubling for us, just the same way that we don't like what Russia or the Soviet Union was doing previously in all the areas on um, its uh, periphery either. But over time, I think that Russia is going to have a little bit more of a concern against China than they do right now. It's just that we're not going to be the ones that cause that. And that was kind of what um, certainly President Trump and others hoped that they could drive a wedge between the United States and uh, between Russia and China. But in fact, a lot of United States policies kept pushing Russia and China closer together over the last several years. But uh, Russia has an enormous border with China. 
I mean, most of Russia's borders, we look back at the map again, of course, with the Arctic and, you know, kind of they're the, the big Arctic power. But that's also relevant because China has much bigger aspirations than its own locality and region. It's not just the Asia Pacific. China's actually declared itself an Arctic power. China's also been making forays into another of the traditional areas that Russia sees as its neighborhood, Central Asia. China borders with Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and you know, some of the other Tajikistan, some of the other Central Asian um, countries. And um, there's also populations from Central Asia in China as well, Kazakhs, Kyrgyz. And also we're hearing a lot, of course, about the Uyghurs and there are Uyghur populations also in Central Asia. And you know, traditionally in uh, the imperial period, you know, Russia was expanding its empire out into that region and encroaching on some of the sort of territories on the periphery with um, China. And in fact, the whole of the territory north of the Amur River along that border between China and Russia was once Chinese territory, or at least the Chinese uh, uh, empire had you know, some kind of claim on this territory. In the 1860s, when China was very weak and European uh, countries were also colonizing or taking away um, territory from China, like the United Kingdom with um, Hong Kong, you know, for example, or you know, other countries moving on in. Russia also took that uh, territory north of the Amur River, and on you know Chinese maps, they still have that you know labeled as part of Chinese territory. So there's always a risk to Russia that just like Russia decided to annex Crimea back again from Ukraine, that at some point China might have some kind of interest in that territory. And we just saw quite recently. China and India getting into a military confrontation in the Himalayas over disputed territory that everyone had forgotten about. I know I'd certainly forgotten about it. And then suddenly, you know, you hear about China and India getting into a firefight and with pretty significant casualties. And the same happened between the Soviet Union and China back in the 1960s and 1970s. They had a firefight over the Amur River. It was a real war. It was, you know, quickly tamped down, but nonetheless, it was a proper conflict. So somewhere down the line, Russia might find itself in a much less comfortable place with China. It's just not now. And so our efforts under the, you know, the Trump administration were premature. That you know, really, Russia had no interest whatsoever in being in any kind of camp opposing China. And in fact, you know, they've done everything to, to resist that and to try to forge a closer relationship with China because China is the rising power. And they don't want to find themselves anytime soon in any kind of opposition to China. Well, speaking of presidential efforts, uh, with Biden's, uh, President Biden's uh, recent announcement that he's going to be pulling troops out of Afghanistan, probably, hopefully, uh, targeted right now by uh, the anniversary of 9-11, what specific impact, if any, does that have uh, with Russia and on the region and also with Ukraine? Is there any impact with the pullout of those troops? Well, we'll have to see. First of all, we have to remember too that the Russians have had their own very unpleasant experience in Afghanistan. The Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in 1980 um, in response to a coup in Afghanistan in which you know their kind of preferred leader was usurped and they kind of went in to try to sort things out and ended up being bogged down over 10 years in a massive civil war in Afghanistan in which we were also involved as people will remember you know, supporting the resistance to uh, the Soviet Union, the Mujahideen. And, you know, that was a really bloody conflict that, as far as the Soviet Union is concerned, helped to contribute to that overextension 
that I mentioned before, one of the stresses and strains that brought down the Soviet Union. And basically the Soviet pullout of Afghanistan in 1989, you know, was um, you know, not that long after followed by the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, Afghanistan, you know, traditionally is seen as sort of like the graveyard of empires. The Brits didn't have a very good um, experience there. There's an infamous retreat from Kabul in the 1840s. Um, you know, so this seems to follow probably from the Russian perspective a pattern. I mean, the Brits actually found some way of stabilizing Afghanistan from a distance uh, after that period, after trying to kind of, you know, control it directly from the capital. So it's possible that, you know, we might also find some way of bringing some kind of stability from afar to Afghanistan in conjunction with others. But it's not clear that the, you know, the Russians will try to rush straight back in, you know, given their own experience there. In fact, they were always warning us all the way along that it was very difficult to restore order in Afghanistan. You know, they have been, you know, trying to take advantage of the United States' um, lack of success in Afghanistan. It's certainly the case that, you know, we might well see them you know, try to have some kind of influence there, but they're not likely to try to kind of move on into Afghanistan, not in the way that we saw in um, Syria. Now, whether this will have an impact elsewhere, you know, if they might to try to kind of uh, depict this as a kind of classic retreat for the United States, the United States also being weak. I mean, the Russians are trying to say that we're in the same predicament they were um, uh, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, we're spent power, this is what they're telling everybody. They, you know, will probably try to capitalize upon this to show that the United States is like the Soviet Union in the uh, late 1980s, you know, on the precipice of collapse. They'll certainly get some propaganda um, uh, out of this. There's no doubt about it, you know, in trying to depict the United States in a very negative light. And they may, you know, use that to try to pressure President Zelensky in Ukraine saying, look, you know, the United States can't help you. Look at what happened to them in Afghanistan. But, you know, a lot of it depends on the action we take. And if we are continue to be unified with our NATO allies and our other allies who were with us in Afghanistan, you know, there are still things that we can do to address this differently. And as you might recall, um, President Biden is, is really, in many respects, following on from what President Trump wanted to do. President Trump also wanted to withdraw from Afghanistan because there was a kind of a feeling that we weren't really getting any traction there with the military operation and we might have to in fact we would have to think about this differently and we've done the same in syria you know we didn't want to be heavily engaged there like we had been in iraq we wanted to find a way of having a lighter footprint and you know of course we've been you know really trying to extricate ourselves from there as well uh, after you know trying to put an end to isis and to the um you know way that um all kinds of islamist um uh, terrorist groups had uh, established themselves in Syria just like you know they had done in Afghanistan so I mean I think you know the problems that we faced in both Syria and Afghanistan have not gone away we're just trying to figure out if there's a different way of, uh, of tackling them it's a difficult issue but you know the Russians were there as well they had the same problem it's uh it's all difficult uh, none of this is easy uh, but you are breaking it down very well so thank you for that uh so let me let let's pivot uh, to an, a, a new topic. So uh, SolarWinds, that hack that uh, came through and the U.S. has now announced that they've implicated Russia. And uh, so last Thursday, uh, we expelled 10 diplomats and placed uh, sanctions on Russia. Uh, and then we have a, a question from our audience from Howard Townsend. To what extent do you believe the recently announced sanctions will deter Russia from its inappropriate activities? And and, and, and to add that, I mean, really, will it have real impact there? Uh, we've put a lot of sanctions on Russia in the past. 
We have, and it's um, you know a very difficult um, issue um, overall. I mean, how to calibrate sanctions? Do we keep on using them? Do we try something different? I do want to actually clarify, first of all, that the people who have been expelled are not diplomats. They're actually intelligence operatives, and some of them were not declared. Um, there are official intelligence um, uh, people who are registered and come um, as diplomats, um, usually to represent their agencies um, in um, overt interactions with us. But then there are covert operatives who masquerade as diplomats. And sadly, what we've found over the many years, because about 106 uh, different Russian um, intelligence operatives have been expelled since dating back to 2014 and what happened in um, you know, Crimea and then in Donbass, that the Russians tend to emphasize intelligence operations over diplomacy. And this is part of our problem when we get to deterrence. We uh, tend to really put a lot of emphasis on diplomacy. And you know, when there are reciprocal or proportionate or disproportionate expulsions that the Russians do from our embassies, they do expel diplomats. And this is a dilemma for us because we actually want to have diplomacy. We want to improve the relationship overall with the Russian people. You know, we're, we're not big fans of uh, this particular Russian government and the way that they do business, poisoning people, you know, assassinations and all kinds of subversive clandestine acts and massive hackings. Uh, and we're trying to deter them not just by sanctions, but by expelling their guys who are carrying these things out. You might have actually noticed that the Czechs have just expelled uh, a number of operatives as well. And they have found out that they were responsible for blowing up um, an arms depot in the Czech Republic in 2014, probably to stop arms from being sold to Ukraine. And some of the people involved in that explosions at the Czech arms depot were also involved in the poisoning of Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia in Salisbury, in uh, the United Kingdom, in the town of Salisbury in 2018. Now that attack wasn't just a spy on spy. Sergei Skripal had been a previous attack. Yes, these are the two lovely gentlemen um, uh, involved in this. I'm surprised that you've kind of managed to pick up these pictures. This is very impressive. Just uh, to say, I'm sure this is the work of you and your team here, but I'm you know, kind of very impressed that you're managing to do this in real time. So these two gentlemen who were you know, partly um, identified in fact, by an investigative journalist group called Bellincat in the UK, as well as you know, the spade work of um, our own um, intelligence um, services, um, they didn't just um, harm uh, Sergio Skripal and his daughter, Yulia. They also killed a British citizen, Dawn Sturgis, a woman who had absolutely nothing to do with anything because they had um, hidden uh, the nerve agent uh, so that they could transport it in a perfume bottle, a French perfume bottle, like Lancome or something like this. And then they discarded it in uh, the bin of a charity shop in Salisbury, where it was found by Dawn Sturgis and her partner. She then sprayed it on her wrists and, of course, died. So there was enough in this little um, perfume bottle to kill 4,000 people because this was um, a, a banned prohibited nerve agent, the Russians denied they had it. And of course, it's the same nerve agent in a different form that they also used to try to assassinate Navalny. And what we tried to do in 2018 was to try to deter them from doing this again. And I think you know, one of the reasons that we didn't succeed is because we didn't have a unified response. And this gets to the heart of the question. Because to have um, a real impact on Russia, you have to have everybody doing the same thing and sending a very clear message that this is not permissible. And we tried in 2018 to have not just the United Kingdom and the United States expel 
operatives, but the French and the Germans and the Czechs at the time and the Poles and the Hungarians and the Austrians and everybody else. And we did, in fact, expel a large number of operatives across the whole of Europe, but the French and the Germans and others were a little bit more wishy-washy about this because they thought it was spy and spy. They didn't want to engage in Cold War, you know, diplomatic tit for tat, which we weren't doing. And they were also reluctant to take action because they thought it wasn't really happening to them. And in fact, that's kind of why deterrence doesn't work. It doesn't work when people decide not to do it because they think, oh, well, you know, we don't want Russia to do this to us. And in fact, we found out the Russia's done things like this to pretty much everybody. The Czechs discovered it was them who blew up their arms depot. The Germans later found that they'd been hacking their parliament. The, the um, Dutch found out that they were hacking the offices of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. The Swiss found that they were hacking their labs. The Olympics got hacked, you know, it just went on and on and on. So the only way to deter is if every country takes the same step and is not just left to the United States or to the UK to take action. And that's our problem. We won't deter unless we can get everyone to act together. And I think it's because we didn't send a really strong signal in 2018 that the Russians then tried to use the same nerve agent in a somewhat different form and a different format because they smeared it in his underpants rather than spraying it on doorknobs. I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, boggles the imagination really, the kind of things that they think to come up with. They, you know, put polonium in the tea of Mr. Litvinenko, you know, back in the Cold War, they put a rice and pellet in an umbrella and stuck it into the, you know, the calf of a Bulgarian diplomat. I mean, they come up with all kinds of fantastical ways of assassinating people, but we didn't send a strong enough message in 2018 that this was uh, unacceptable. And so they tried it again. And that's the problem that we have. So we've got to get everybody else to work with us. We are getting a lot of questions about uh, the relationships between Trump and Biden and Russia. Uh, and some have likened the relationship between President Trump and, uh, and Putin to a bromance at times. So there are some questions from our uh, audience, Don Llewellyn. Uh, please talk about the relationship between President Trump and Russia. Is the US in a better position now or a worse one? And, and then two other audience members, and I'm just going to combine a few things because we're getting short on time and I want to get to the impeachment hearings in 2020 from our uh, member Ray Termini. He says, what does Putin think about Biden and have they had direct dealings before? And Christine Buchanan says, is it a mistake for President Biden, Biden to offer to meet with Putin? Well, I'll take those all together because I think they're all interrelated. First of all, there's no alternative but to try to meet with Putin, you know, one way or another. Um, timing, of course, is everything. But, you know, you have a, a hierarchical system in Russia, a very narrow hierarchy, where nobody really counts as much as Putin in that whole system. It's called a vertical of power. And he's been in power now coming on. It'll be 21 years, um, you know, at the end of, um, uh, of this year. And... You know, Putin, you know, essentially, because um, you know, of course, actually, it was January 2000, you know, when he when he came in, when he came in. And so Putin is the epitome of, you know, the Russian state. And although we, um, you know, tend uh, normally to delegate power down, you know, to empower our defense secretary, secretary of state, etc. In the Russian system, nobody counts as much as Putin. And that is kind of, you know, part of the problem we have. So we have to meet with him. Now, during the Trump administration, the whole thing got very personalized. So um, Trump actually 
um, President Trump also ran, you know, the government in the same way. You know, I mean, he said it quite openly. It's no surprise. He said he was the only one who met it. He said it over and over again. And so he wanted to be the only one who met with Putin. Now, that wasn't always the case, because given what Putin had done in 2016 in terms of intervening in the election, there was always just an enormous suspicion and shock and horror every time that um, Trump wanted to meet with Putin. And people got semi-historical about it at times. And so, you know, that made it very difficult. And, you know, we can get into a little bit more of that perhaps in some other questioning. But P President Trump wanted to be the only person who sat down there with Putin. He thought as a deal maker, as a businessman, he could um, charm Putin. He was, you know, it was very much was a bromance. Trump wanted it to be a bromance because he thought that he was the one who could do business with uh, Putin. What did he want to do business? He actually wanted to have an arms control deal. So um, Trump himself was very much fixated on the um, arms control agreements of the end of the 1980s that had ended the Cold War. And he wanted to try to conclude and wrap all of those up. That all got lost in the mix, but that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to sit, do, sit down with Putin just as Reagan had sat down with Gorbachev and H.W. Bush had sat down with Gorbachev and thrashed things out. He just never really managed to get the chance to do that. Biden has already kind of said to Putin, OK, let's extend the um, new START agreement uh, that was about to expire, it would have expired in February. So that's kind of off the table. But there's still the problem of what do you do about nuclear weapons in a new, much more complicated age? It isn't the 1980s anymore. We've got China with nuclear weapons. I mean, China, of course, is one of the traditional nuclear powers after World War II. But China's been building up a big ballistic missile capacity and as well as strategic missiles. It's not at the Soviet level yet or the Russian level, but it's getting up there. So China is now a bigger nuclear power to be reckoned with. I mean, France and the United Kingdom, the other traditional powers are not so much, of course, but you have Pakistan, you have India, you have other countries that you know we assume have uh, nuclear weapons, you have others that want them. And I think what happened with Iran and also with North Korea is an illustration of that. President Trump wanted to deal with their nuclear uh, capacity as well to head it off. And so you know, he, every time it came to nuclear weapons, he was kind of concerned about it, just people didn't always see the linkages. So Biden still has to deal with that. But Biden's got other things he wants to deal with. We just talked about it. He's got to try to figure out what to do about China. He's got to do economic reconstruction, post-pandemic um, issues, um, and still dealing with the pandemic. Biden would prefer not to have to deal with Russia all the time. And I think what Biden was hoping was that there would be an incentive about saying that he would sit down with Putin to try to talk these things through. It's not just a gift to sit down with Putin. You can also pass on hard messages and try to level set that expectation about what you're going to do in the event that the Russians do something. It can be part of deterrence if it's handled properly. It's just against this current backdrop, it's very difficult to envisage that there would be any kind of productive meeting. So it's not a mistake to say you're going to meet. It's just how you do it, when you do it, and where you do it um, is part of the issue. So uh, just briefly, uh, to give everyone a reminder, uh, the Helsinki meetings in 2018, Trump came out of that meeting and uh, didn't accept that Russia had interfered in our elections, even though our intelligence agencies were saying, yeah, yeah, they did. And he didn't accept that on camera. And there was a huge uproar about that. Uh, what did you think about the Helsinki meeting? And is there anything that you would share now that you didn't share then? Well, sure. I mean, the meeting itself wasn't as problematic as it appeared from the press conference because it was all about trying to figure out the next steps for a nuclear arms control meeting. 
So the things that everybody missed behind the scenes, it's a little bit of a, a tragedy, to be honest, because President Trump thought he was doing, you know, what Gorbachev and H.W. Bush had done, you know, when they went off to meet with Gorbachev in places like Helsinki or Geneva or Reykjavik or, you know, Moscow back in the day. That's what he thought he was doing. The issue, of course, was 2016 and Trump's failure to, you know, basically say over and over again that, um, uh, sorry, my dog has just come in. I don't know whether she heard the, you know, kind of the word Putin or something, you know, and kind of it becomes a trigger that the dog just opened the door and came in. Sorry about that. Hopefully she won't bark or anything. Um, but uh, basically, he found it very hard to admit that Russia had interfered because of the inference from everyone else that that meant that he hadn't been legitimately elected. So for Trump, every time anybody would ask that question, he heard that question not as accepting that Russia had done something nefarious, but as somehow admitting he was not legitimate as the president, because so many people had said he wasn't elected by American voters, although we had no evidence whatsoever that the Russians had tried to mess with the actual vote of the vote count, but there was this sort of assumption that somehow they'd influenced everyone's opinion. So Trump was always hearing, you're not uh, um, really the president, are you, Mr. President? Will you not admit that Vladimir Putin elected you as president? Of course he wasn't going to admit to that. And that's what happened in Helsinki. He got very defensive. He didn't want to admit it. And he was trying to kind of find a way of turning it around. And we ended up with what we ended up, which was a disastrous press conference. So that's what I thought was happening, a disastrous press conference. I wish there hadn't been a press conference. But it was really kind of more about, um, you know, President Trump's own anxiety about that issue of being accused, dog is wrong, uh, accused of, you know, somehow not being the legitimate president, that it was really about, you know, Putin and interference in 2016. It's hard to explain, but that was really what was going on. Now, of course, President Biden doesn't have that issue. No one's suggesting that he was elected by President Putin. And in fact, the 2020 election should have shown that neither was President Trump. Because without President Putin interfering in any major way, I mean, we know they were messing around the Russians, but not anything like they were in 2016, President Trump got millions more votes than he actually had in 2016, which shows that this was more the dynamic going on in the United States than it was the interference of Russian intelligence operatives or fake Russian personas on the internet. So it's, you know, kind of too late now to reflect back on that, but that was all, you know, what was going on. Now, President Biden, has also got to figure very carefully about how he handles Putin at a summit meeting and also press conferences, you know, because with Putin, there's always going to be surprises. Uh, and I think he's good at that. Uh, very good at surprises. Yeah, yep. yeah. He knows how uh, to push our buttons. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, probably part of his uh, training uh, exactly. back in early days. So uh, I really want to get to the impeachment because I think that was just such an incredible time in our history. And uh, I'm talking about the, of course, first impeachment that you were a key witness uh, of. And we have uh, a question from an audience member as well. Uh, so let's ask a couple of questions. Uh, first one, uh, and this will round us out here this evening. The first one is, is though, uh, did you discuss with Bolton beforehand about uh, his decision not to testify? Uh, he's, he was the national security advisor, if everybody will remember, just for about a year and a half or so. And do you wish he would have and would it have had any Im impact? And then my question, which is very similar to uh, Randy Evans, in uh, in retrospect, how did that feel? 
being an immediate star with the entire world watching you. And I mean, I, I was watching with, uh, you know, my eyes were riveted to you uh, during your testimony. How did that feel to you? And of course, the Bolton question first, or however you do it. Yeah, well, the simple answer to the Bolton question is no. <laughs> Um, I mean, I didn't actually have any conversation um, with Ambassador Bolton again for a very long time after I left the National Security Council in um, July of 2019. And of course, he ended up leaving himself in September. It wasn't that long after. And, you know, I, I mean, if he'd still been there as National Security Advisor, you know, who knows, you know, kind of um, it was just a very long time until I got to talk to him again. And partly that was because, you know, once I found out that I was being subpoenaed of course I wasn't you know supposed to talk to anybody and I ended up you know sheltering in place at home for an extraordinarily long um, period of time um there was however you know kind of so many revelations in the book um when it finally came out that I wish actually one that he told me some of this stuff before and not left it until the book because I was still piecing things together for myself even in real time during the testimony and yes of course you know kind of it would have been helpful to have him testify but I'm not sure that it would really have changed the outcome which was really his assessment I think he was anticipating and I can't I can't speak for him that he might be called up against the senate which would have been appropriate but clearly that was a decision that was made not to have him testify and obviously there's a lot of really um, um, vital information in his book you know the room where it happened uh, again I would have loved to know that before I read about it in the book but you know that's the way it is and um in terms of the impeachment itself, I had no anticipation that it would turn out in the way that it did from my own personal perspective. I mean, I was obviously just very much focused on trying to um, um, tell the truth, lay things out and explain things as I saw them. Um, you know, I, I think it was I made it very clear in real time that I didn't have, you know, full information uh, when I was at the National Security Council. In fact, it was only as a result of um, reading all of the depositions when they were released you know I gave another closed door deposition of 400 plus pages of almost 500 pages you know, behind closed doors in October that was then all re later released on the eve of the hearings in November and it was really reading through everything that everybody else had told the um, committee that really gave me some insights into many of the things that I'd just not seen in the time I was there. I think all of us are, are pretty much aware that even in our own jobs we don't have complete information uh, other people have part of the picture you know and sometimes you're just sort of piecing things together and I was doing that in real time during the actual hearings because I was also at the very end along with David Holmes uh, my colleague from um, the embassy in Kiev and by that time I'd heard everybody else give testimony and I, I felt like I had more of a complete picture and so I also felt it was my role like I'm doing now to try to explain and put things in context because I was working it out for myself and perhaps that was why my uh, testimony had so much resonance with people because I thought well I'll try to explain what's happening and in previous positions when I was national intelligence officer I'd also been called up against uh, up to congress many times of course in closed hearings to try to explain big issues why there'd been a war in Georgia for example you know why had you know kind of our intelligence missed this or that or you know kind of could I explain what was happening here and there so my job had often been to explain complex situations and to try to you know answer um, you know all of the congressmen and congresswomen's questions and so I kind of thought of that as being trying to be my role in uh, the testimony, try to explain things as far as I could see them as well. 
and to try to help them you know answer the questions i saw myself very much as a fact witness not playing a role for you know one side or another i certainly didn't see myself in the partisan mix and you know as a professional as a kind of an expert on russia and as someone who's just trying to do their job you know i wanted to you know convey as much as i can just to basic information so i was shocked when i found that resonated with people so much as it did well, you did an incredible job as a nonpartisan, and and also uh, you do an incredible incredible job of breaking it down. And Dave, I see you there, but I just uh, want to give Fiona the opportunity to talk about your book that's coming out this fall. I think we'd all be really interested in that. No, well, thank you. And in fact, my book was inspired by all of the letters that I received after the testimony, because I don't normally put myself in my job. But because of all of the things that I'd experienced over the course of the hearings, I felt like I had to explain myself of who I was, that I wasn't some deep state coup plotting bureaucrat as I was being accused of. I wasn't a partisan hack. You know, I was somebody who was a professional, but I was also somebody who was a patriot of America and I was an immigrant. And I, you know, obviously I've got an accent and I wanted to explain it. And so for the very first time, I kind of put myself in the picture and in my opening statement, I explained who I was, where I was from and how I'd had these incredible opportunities in the United States. And after that, um, that also seemed to resonate. I got hundreds and hundreds of letters, including from Texas and from just like all over the United States. But a lot of people wanted to say to me that the opportunities that I'd had, that I'd had coming to the United States when I did in 1989, had really changed. And over the course of the 2000s, a lot of people, younger people, like you know, some of your interns who I talked to a little bit earlier, were not having those same kind of opportunities. In fact, there was an opportunity crisis in the United States. And that was feeding in to a lot of the political divisions, the polarization and the partisan infighting. And it had been behind the contentious nature of the elections in um, 2016. And I knew that President Putin and Russian operatives had tried to play on all of these divisions, the partisan divisions, the democratic, republican, you know, kind of blue, red divides, the racial differences, the gender differences, the religious differences. They were just really trying to pit Americans against each other, but they were trying to pit them against each other on the basis of what Americans were saying and uh, about other Americans and doing against other Americans. We're just using our own infighting against ourselves. And so I wanted to write a book about this when I stepped away. So the book is about the opportunity crisis in the United States, how it's become a national security crisis and how people's unequal access to education, to jobs, uh, spatial inequality, the fact that you know, in kind of one area, you don't have the same opportunities you have in others, racial inequality, gender inequality, you, know, you name it, socioeconomic inequality has really kind of fed into an America that's become divided against itself. And my whole point is that that's a national security crisis for us because Russia can exploit it and it doesn't make us competitive against China. And so we have to try to address it. And that's the point of the book that I've been writing. I have to finish it actually, because otherwise nobody will be reading it in October. I have to get it um, actually into the, in the next couple of weeks. So I'm finishing it off now. <laughs> I know last time uh, you and I had a Zoom a couple of weeks ago, you were talking about your next round of edits. So yeah, well I'm on the third round of edits now. So hopefully, ah, making well, progress. Hopefully third round's the charm. <laughs> I love it. And, and thank you so much. I can't wait to read your book. There's so much that we didn't get to. Uh, there's always uh, more questions, but uh, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, and thanks so that, much, Dave, I hand it over to you.
Thank you, Dr. Hill, and, and thank you, Liz, for a very great stimulating discussion. And as, as Liz said, Dr. Hill, we, there's so much still on the table to talk about, so we hope you will come back. And to catch up on our past programs, please head over to you, our YouTube channel at DFW World. And once again, please remember Dr. Hill's book, uh, comes out in October. She will finish it. Uh, and I know she would appreciate you having a copy of it. Thank you all for joining us this evening and have a good night.